Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Bodhi Cognition Podcast. My name is Dhruva Mwani. And my name is Arjun Kalu. And we would like to welcome Ms. Corin Stevenson from Kids Development Clinic in Houston, Texas, where she has been working as a speech-language pathologist for past, the past two years. Ms. Stevenson attended Oklahoma State University for seven years, where she received her bachelor bachelor's in communication science and disorders, as well as her master's in speech-language pathology. We appreciate Ms. Stevenson for giving us the opportunity to interview her. Welcome to the po- uh, Bodhi Cognition Podcast, Ms. Stevenson. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you guys? We are good. So, first off, can we can you explain to the listeners what exactly a speech language pathologist like does? Yeah, so um, that's kind of a loaded question, and I think people typically think about speech language pathologists and just think of um, kind of typical. Um, lisps or stutters or kids who can't say some sounds like their R's, um, but it really is a lot more complex than that. So we work with all ages, birth through geriatrics, with all areas involved in feeding, speech, language, swallowing, um, memory, cognition, attention, problem solving, so a really wide array of areas. Oh, so it's more than just like talking and like uh, like swallowing disorders, you said? Yeah. So it depends on the setting that you're in. You can work with anything from children with feeding and swallowing disorders. So they might have difficulty chewing their food appropriately, or they might need tube feedings or modified diets. Or you can work with children um, in their early toddler years and preschool years on developing their play skills and their language and interaction skills. Then you get up into the school age and you can work with kids in a variety of things. Fluency, such as stuttering, their voice. So if they have um, like growths on their vocal, fo- vocal folds resulting in hoarseness or losing their voice frequently. Um, speech sound errors, so lisps and sound distortions and errors, language abilities, so what they understand and how they express themselves, social skills, so how they interact with others, Um, and then getting into adults. You can work with all sorts of things, brain injuries, strokes, working on regaining the ability to swallow, regaining the ability to communicate with others in their environment, regaining the ability to problem solve and improve their attention and memory. So it really is a very diverse field. So I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are most of the patients, the, most of the patients you see, what type of like a disorder or like issue do they come, come to you for? And again, that depends on the setting. So at my current setting, I'm in a pediatric outpatient clinic. And so I would say the majority of my caseload is autism. And so I see a lot of children with needing assistance with interaction skills, communication skills. So I also do a lot of nonverbal communication. So working with tablets and um, high-tech devices that generate speech for children who are nonverbal. 
So that's my setting. I think what I see the bulk of. Okay. Thank you. Um, so what made you interested into becoming a speech language pathologist? So my mom is a physical therapist. And so I knew I was interested in something healthcare related. And then when I was in high school, I ended up needing to see a speech language pathologist because I had vocal nodules, which are growths on the vocal folds um, that resulted from just overuse, yelling when I played sports, singing in choir. So I needed to see a speech therapist and it kind of sparked my interest. So speaking of high school, you attended Seven Lakes High School, right? Yes. So were there any classes there that like were helpful towards the career you wanted to pursue? Not particularly. Um, I think the closest related course that I did might have been a psychology course. But otherwise, not particularly. I didn't get into classes directly related to speech until college. So basically, it was like, it was more of your mom that helped you realize like you want to get into this, uh, this type of uh, field of helping others. Yeah, that's what sparked it. And so when I went to college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I started off as a nutrition major and I bounced around quite a bit. Um, and so just when I was thinking of different ideas, I kept thinking back to my time with a speech therapist in high school and it, I just found it interesting and talking with my mom who works as a physical therapist, which we work very closely with physical therapists, occupational therapists. So we have a good sense of what each discipline does. Talking with her, I think solidified my interest that it would be a good fit for me because I like people. I like talking. (laughs) So it seemed like a good fit. So did you know anyone in the uh, same field as you or had the same um, or like, had problems that you knew that uh, in this field could help you you mean when I was in high school or or just uh, growing up um I don't think growing up I particularly knew what a speech therapist was and some kids do go their speech work one of the main settings that they do work in is in the public schools and so a lot of kids do get speech therapy as kids through the public schools um that I don't even think I realized and knew that they existed. So growing up, not particularly, but in hindsight, yes. And we, we work with, like I said, children with all sorts of needs and disabilities. So in hindsight, yes, but growing up, I don't think I was fully aware that the career even existed. Okay. So we noticed you attended Oklahoma state university uh, university. Would you describe uh, would you describe this as a good college to go for the profession you wanted? Yes, I loved it. And so I think something important to look into for students considering this career is you want a university that has communication disorders as an undergrad degree because there are ways to become a speech language pathologist without having the undergraduate degree. You can take leveling courses and meet those prerequisites before starting a graduate program. But I think it just gives you a lot more time to grow with the field. So I started taking classes related to speech pathology my sophomore year of college. And we had a clinic on site that the graduate students work in to gain some of the hours. And so as an undergrad, I had direct access to that clinic 
the graduate students, the supervisors, the professors doing research in the field that are based at the university. And then once I transitioned into the master's program, it was a nice, smooth transition. Um, and I had the ability to go to another school, but I really enjoyed my time there. So I chose to stay. So when um, choosing a college that when choosing a college, was it tough? Was it a tough decision for you to choose to stay in state or out of state? Yes. And so I looked for universities that offered similar funding. So Oklahoma State offered pretty good scholarships for out-of-state residents to get it closer to an in-state tuition. So I think it was uh, pretty comparable to some of the in-state tuitions. And so looking at, that was a big factor for me, was looking at what types of scholarships were available and that in-state versus out-of-state tuition. But I think a lot of universities do offer quite a bit of aid in reducing that out-of-state offset. So what colleges in-state would you recommend if someone, like, wasn't able to get a scholarship to go, like, out-of-state? Were there any, like, in-state college that you recommend anyone wanting to pursue that field? Um, oh, gosh, I haven't looked at what the programs are currently, but I know the University of Texas, multiple branches, I think Austin and Dallas both have strong programs. I know that University of North Texas has a program, um, a graduate program. I know that, who else? University of Houston has um, an undergraduate and graduate program, and I actually work with the University of Houston quite a bit because I supervise students that come from their, their program to get practicum hours. So I think a lot of the Texas schools, and I honestly am not familiar with all of the smaller ones, but I know the University of Texas system, University of North Texas, U of H, all have programs for speech pathology. So I saw on, um, on LinkedIn that you had multiple internships but during your college years so was it like tough to manage like staying in college and going to these internships at the same time no because for us at least how it was done at Oklahoma State and I don't know how every university is but at Oklahoma State our first year of graduate school we did clinical practicums on campus so in that on-campus clinic we had our classes and then a few patients each week so it was a very part-time basis and then when we went into the off-site practicums, they were short three months because we did half of the semester in class on campus. And then the rest of the semester, the other half was strictly that externship placement. So I was not taking any classes at that time. It was 100% focused on um, my internship. So how would you rate like how beneficial the internship was to you in like uh, progressing your knowledge as being a speech language pathologist? They are almost the most important. I would say the most important would be the clinical fellowship year, which is um, a requirement for speech pathologists. After we graduate with our master's degree, we have to work one year supervised under another clinician. And so that's a really big learning period. But Behind that, those internships, which are a requirement for every program, you're required to get a set number of observation hours and a set number of direct treatment hours. Those internships are crucial. And so that was a big factor for me as well in deciding what graduate program I wanted to choose 
because they have different requirements for what kinds of settings you need to uh, do your internships in. So like some, some universities require that you do one internship in a school, whereas mine just required one pediatric and one adult-based placement. And so I knew I wanted to be in a more medically-based pediatric setting, and so that was appealing to me. So we know that different colleges give different, like, different opportunities for um, internships. How, how much did Oklahoma State uh, help you out with these, this process? Like, like, what were the benefits of going to Oklahoma State and the internship part of the process in college? So the nice thing was we had a graduate clinic coordinator who was responsible for placing us. And so we were able to write down our top preferences. So wherever we wanted to be, and that was one of the nice things with Oklahoma State was they let us do our externships out of state. So I was able to come back to Texas for them. I did not have to stay in Oklahoma to do them, which was nice because I knew I wanted to work in Texas. But we wrote down our top few choices of settings, and then the clinic coordinator was responsible for reaching out, creating the contracts to take the students, and dealing with all of that um, technical side of it. So which, what was your like most preferred choice to internet? Of the ones that I did? Yeah. Um, well, that, that again, it comes down to personal preference. So I did an internship through Texas Children's Hospital at one of their outpatient facilities. And then I did an internship at Memorial Hermann, one of their inpatient rehab facilities. And so going into my internships, I knew I wanted to work with pediatrics. So just based on that alone, I preferred the Texas Children's just because I knew I wanted to work with kids. But the adult inpatient rehab setting was really incredible. I learned so much in that. Um, and I, I think it's important with this field too to not limit yourself too early because I did initially go, go into the um, – program thinking I only wanted to work with adults and wanted nothing to do with kids. And as soon as I started working, my whole perspective shifted. And so I, I think there's takeaways from both internships. And it's hard to say that I benefited more from one than the other because they were just so different. And I use principles learned and skills learned in both of them. And I work, so my full-time job Monday to Thursday is at Kids Developmental Clinic, like you said, but on Fridays, I am at a private practice which services children and adults. So I'm seeing stroke patients and brain injury patients. And so the skills that I learned at the hospital setting were are still benefiting and really crucial for me as well. So we noticed that you interned at uh, two different places, obviously, for three months each. Uh, we were wondering, like, was there a specific reason you switched places after three months? Yeah, so that was just the requirement of my program. Like I said, we get we had a requirement of two off-campus externships, and they were a set duration. And that's how it is for most universities. You're you're given a certain time period to complete your externship at one location, and then you move on to another because they do want to ensure that you're getting a good insight to the diversity of the field. So you want to see something with children and something with adults because it is a very, very different type of work. 
So for like for people our age, like teenagers, how often do you see speech disorders? Um, and again, it depends on the setting. So at my clinic with an outpatient pediatric clinic, I see a few and they're typically autism or developmental disorders. So things that have been ongoing for their lifespan. Um, but we do see, and I have seen teenagers who have, who stutter and stuttering is a very cyclical disorder. So it comes and goes. And so they need touched up with the, the fluency strategies that they might've been treated for as a kid. And they need some additional help as they move into new phases of their life. And there are teenagers who end up with, um, brain injuries or something like that, where they come to speech therapy to regain some of the abilities that they might've lost in things like a car accident or a sports injury. So we do see teenagers, but I would say it's not as frequent as we see some of the younger children, at least in my current location of work. Um, I think teenagers, if they have those types of injuries, they go more to the hospitals or, things that are more equipped to deal with um, injuries like that. So how do you go about treating people with stutters? Like how do you help them uh, progress? Yeah. So stuttering is a fluency disorder. And so it, they don't really know what causes stuttering or um, why it happens to some people and not others. There's still a lot of research going on with that. So with, older kids and teenagers and even adults, it's teaching different strategies to help compensate for those instances of disfluency and just learning how to use those strategies. And it's also a lot of just learning to be okay with the stutter and understanding, you know, what the, the speech anatomy and where the stuttering is occurring and it's a lot of counseling and being okay with the stuttering. So I'd say that's a big portion of it too. And that's where some of the psychology courses and stuff come in handy that you might take in high school. So it's not just like helping them fix their stutter, but making them like, yeah, confident? yeah. More yeah. confident, like, accepting yeah. that it's a part of them becoming more confident, speaking in a variety of situations, not letting their stutter, you know, stop them from doing all the things that they want to do. So how has like um, recently with, of course, the coronavirus, how, how has that affected like your workplace and like the way you go about helping these uh, kids? It's definitely changed it a lot. We did shut our clinic for a couple months at the height of the coronavirus. So back in March and April, we were closed and doing strictly telehealth, which was a totally different ballgame. I have not had any kind of experience with providing virtual therapy. So it was a steep learning curve for myself and the kids, but it was nice that we were able to continue our therapy sessions as scheduled through the, the teletherapy sessions. And so those were structured a little bit differently because I wasn't there directly with the kids. So it was a lot more parent based, which was fun in a lot of instances, um, but definitely had its own challenges and then once the clinic did reopen, we are all wearing masks. Um, it's a lot more uh, trying to, you know, we can't play with the kids together anymore. We used to get them in groups and we can't do that anymore. Um, a lot more social distancing and cleaning and 
masks and face shields. So it is a very different feel to the work environment, but we're able to keep going and keep seeing kids safely in person. So that's been a blessing. Uh, so I have a question. Um, when you have a bilingual uh, like person come for help, how, how much does this change your training with them? And so that depends a lot on the age of the patient coming in. So like Spanish is the most frequent bilingual kids that we get. And so we do have bilingual therapists at our clinic and um, a lot of clinics do have. And so that's, that's really a game changer for us. Um, And so it does change it because you have to be considerate of what types of things with their language development are a true language disorder versus what is just an impact of learning two languages at the same time or errors that are influenced from one language over the other. So it's really differentiating what's a true language disorder versus what's just a language difference because a language difference doesn't require speech therapy. It's only required if there's a language disorder. And so it takes work. So what does it mean? And so I would just say it takes finding a therapist who recognizes what to look for. Um, And really ideal is finding a bilingual therapist. If that's something where both languages are spoken equally, Um, finding a bilingual therapist to help separate those two or um, the use of medical interpreters in sessions is another option when a bilingual therapist isn't an option. So was there any case that stuck out to you or like a challenging case you guys undertook that was like different than the others? Um, you know, every, every case is different. I think there's always those kids or those patients who just kind of stick with you. And so I think looking back to grad school, I did have a few kids who were really, I think the ones who I attribute to shifting my desire from wanting to work with adults to wanting to work with uh, pediatrics, but it's different for every person. I don't think there's a particular, I can't think of like a particular necessarily like disorder or case that was super different because they are all unique, but it's just, I think sometimes you just have those connections and those relationships with people that just stick with you. So what do you, um, we know you work with uh, children. So what do you like most about uh, like children instead of, let's say, like, you know, you chose chose the pathway to help children out. Like, what do you like more in them when, uh, than adults, I guess? I just have fun working with kids. So I, I like getting involved, playing games and songs and making learning for them fun. Um, and you see improvements so rapidly because they're so young. But I think it just comes down to I like the type of therapy that is done with kids. I enjoy interacting with them and helping them learn how to play, helping them learn how to interact with other people and learn how to find their voice and communicate. Um, you know, I think that's something that's really been rewarding for me in this past year is I've done a lot more work with nonverbal children and working with 
getting them devices that help them communicate. And it's just been a very eye-opening experience to see them find their voices in a really unique way. Um, and it's just, it just is, I think it's fun, <laughs> but I know friends and colleagues who say the same about working with adults. And so it's a different kind of fun working with adults. So it's really hard to, um, <laughs> to, to put into words wh why my preference is kids, but I think it's just, I find it fun. It's just something that yeah, like, comes natural you know, to you. It's in any career in any field, you just find what's your comfort zone and what feels more natural. And so I enjoy working with adults. I enjoy the conversation that I get to have with them. And I enjoy getting to help them regain the abilities that they've lost. Cause that's the biggest difference with kids and adults with kids. Usually you're working to help them gain new skills that they haven't acquired yet. And with adults, you're helping them regain skills that they've lost or you're helping them learn ways to compensate for progressive degenerative disorders like dementia and Alzheimer's. So learning them, teaching them how to compensate and learn to live with those progressive diagnoses. And so it's just a matter of what feels right to you. And I think I just feel natural when I work with children. So, um, okay. So do adults come in more because of injury and, um, yeah, injuries, because, uh, we, you said how children come in more for like, you know, realizing that they have this problem and like helping them gain more confidence and, uh, becoming better. So do, because do adults like come in more for injuries in this case? Yeah. So kids, it's more, like I said, gaining new abilities, less rehabilitative, and with adults, it's typically more rehabilitative. So I would say with, with adults, it's, a, it's very common that adults receiving speech therapy are receiving it due to strokes or traumatic brain injuries, or there are ones who also receive it for, like I said, progressive disorders like dementia, Parkinson's, ALS, um, but yes, for adults, it's typically the result of an injury um, or a stroke or cancers, head and neck cancers also need speech therapists. Um, like I said, it's hard to even sitting here working in the field. It's hard for me to always think about all the different areas that we work with because it really is so vast and people find their their area that they really enjoy. And someone working in an acute care hospital is doing a completely different job than what I'm doing in an outpatient pediatric clinic, even though we have the same college degree and the same graduate degree. And that's where those internships come into play as well. So getting into an internship in a facility or a location closely related to what you want to work with um, is really beneficial. So did your mom also work with kids or was it something? Yeah, no, my mom needed? worked only with adults. She did primarily home health, which is another area that speech therapists can work in and nursing homes, which again is another common area for uh, speech therapists to work in. And I would say the most common fields or settings for speech therapists, the majority of jobs I think are in the skilled nursing facilities and in the public schools. 
Okay, so this wraps up our questions. Oh, there's this one question um, that we like to ask. Is there like a certain quote you live by? Oh, I've never thought about that. <laughs> now you're making me want to think about oh, that, okay. but I have never thought about that. <sighs> so uh, thank you, Miss Stevenson, for joining thank us you. today. Um, taking time for you to join us. Um, just want to thank everyone for listening to the fourth episode of the Body Cognition Podcast. Hope you all tune in next time. Have a good day.